I know that each week there's potential that someone new has come that hasn't been here. Um, and I want you to know that the reason my mask is off is because I'm at such a great distance from you. It will go back on when I give communion out and at the end of Mass. So just so you know, we, we, we really need to observe all of those uh, safety precautions. Uh, secondly, I, I think uh, this is amazing. During this week, we're going to celebrate our patron, Bernard. And here we are outside. We can't even go into our building. And we understand that. We get it. But um, I think in a way it actually enhances this Feast of Bernard because here was somebody who went around building monasteries and I'm sure there was a lot of discomfort and um, sleeping outside and doing all kinds of things until they could get the kind of quarters where they could house all the friars that would become part of his monastery, um, typical of any founder. But also um, uh, it makes me think of, of uh, my past because these readings are really talking about the past and the historic beginnings of our church. When I was ordained in 1976, um, someone, I don't know him, but his name was Victor Liker, and he lived in New Jersey, sent to me a book uh, of, the, of the beginnings of the Liker family in the United States. They, uh, my dad was born in a little tiny town. There's probably like 250 people, something like that, in Munger, Kansas. But his people came from Obermunger, Russia. And those people came from the Volga region of Germany. So they migrated to Russia. And the reason they did was Catherine the Great, a German, married a Russian prince to unite the two kingdoms. And so she brought a whole bunch of her Germans to do the farming and to build up their economy and their land. But um, there were promises made to them that they broke uh, after, I don't know, 20, 30 years. Uh, that they wouldn't have to serve in the military or pay taxes, but you know, you know how that is, that changed. So uh, about half of the people from Obermunger came to the United States, and that's where my family got here. Well, I didn't know any of this, and, and I found this out. Well, I knew a tiny bit, but I didn't really know these roots. And so when I got this book, I didn't read it right away. About 10 years later, I read it and got informed. And I began to appreciate my family roots and my people, the German people. Uh, can you imagine after World War II coming here how popular they were? I don't think so. And anybody who had a German accent, uh, I'm sure, was, you know, uh, was put down or insulted or um, hated. They went to this little town, and the first thing they did was build a church because... Uh, all the immigrant peoples, Italians, uh, Germans, everybody that's come here uh, that are Catholic, especially in those days, uh, understood the importance of their faith and establishing their lives and their community around their church. So they did. Having reflected on this, and it just popped into my consciousness uh, this weekend when I came upon these readings, uh, I write the little reflection a couple months before, and so I go back and read it and, and check out the readings. And uh, of course, the thing that jumped out, it even mentioned by name in every uh, reading, is Gentile. Well, the gospel doesn't mention Gentile, but she's a Canaanite, so we know that she's a Gentile. In the first reading, um, uh, Isaiah is sharing a, just an incredible message. He's way before Christ, and he's saying that God has now spoken to the Gentile nations. And said, through Israel, you have come to know the God of Israel. And I call you, 
I call Israel to be a light to the nations, and I call you to be a light to the nations. So the Gentile nations were being invited into the faith of Israel. Now, I don't know if you know this, but, uh, you know, almost always we hear all this anger and hatred toward Jews over the centuries. You know, it came to a huge climax, of course, with Hitler. But, but the Jews have been often detested by people. And I don't know all the reasons. I know they, they make these claims about money mongering or something. But I think it really goes back to these roots. The Jews told the world this. There are two people on earth. Jews, the chosen people, and the rest of you. <laughs> Jews and the rest of you are all Gentile. And you're not chosen by God. We're chosen by God. Well, that's quite a message to put out to the world. That doesn't invite a lot of friendship, I don't think. But by the time that Isaiah writes this, he says, the message is breaking through. The Gentile world is being invited in. Now, Romans, Paul writes to the Romans, and listen to this language, because this is just, wow. He's beginning to tell the, the Jews, you rejected Jesus, the Messiah. You should have known him when he came. You should have been prepared. You should have been seeing the signs. The deaf are hearing, the, the blind are seeing, the paralyzed are getting up and dancing. Please, this is the Messiah, but you didn't recognize it. So he says this. He says, brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. You Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. For it was he who went around and broke the church out to the Ephesians, Corinthians, uh, Romans. He says, inasmuch as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I glory in my ministry in order to make my race, the Jews, to make my race jealous and thus have some of them saved. Oh my God, what language. He says, I'm inviting you Gentiles in. This is the last chance for my Jewish brothers and sisters to finally get the message. I want them to become jealous of the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. That might turn them to the Lord. Now we know that the church began among the Jews. Jesus chose disciples from among the Jews. But it didn't catch on hugely. And then Paul, who was persecuting the Jews who were turning to Christianity, himself became converted. And once that happened, he became, as he says in his own words, the apostle to the Gentiles. And he went out and preached to all the Gentile nations around. And then the church went like this, this core, this nucleus of Jewish Christians, and then this incredible growth of Gentile Christians. And then somewhere between uh, 33 and 70, they had, as a recorded in the Acts of the Apostles, the first uh, council of the church in which Peter had a vision told to eat these unclean foods that Jews couldn't eat. And in this vision, he came to understand that God was calling him and his fellow disciples and all of the Jewish Christians to accept the Gentiles and to say they too um, have the right to this faith and are truly followers of Christ. And then there was some issues about what rules they should follow because they weren't about to follow the 613 rules of the Jews. Now, that's the context. The gospel was written uh, after 70, okay? And there's generations now, probably two or three generations of, of Christians. And once again, we go back to the theme of the Gentiles. So in this story, 
Jesus is in Canaanite territory, I guess, and this Canaanite woman comes up to him, and um, she begins to cry out. You heard the story, you know, help me, my daughter is possessed by demons. Now, this is right, right from the very first line, you know, uh-oh, this is an interesting story. A Gentile woman is coming up to Jesus and recognizes his power, his authority, his, his, his healing power, and, and cries out to him with a conviction that she can be saved, her daughter can be saved because of him. And he ignores her. Now, uh, you know, I, I, I can only interpret it the best I can, and, and I, I can't say any of this with proof to you, but I, Jesus didn't ignore people, uh, you know, to ignore them. But he might ignore them to make a point. He might ignore them to cause them to react and for something extraordinary to happen, and it happens today. So she's calling out, help me, Lord, help me, Lord. He doesn't even respond. Just keeps walking. And so the disciples come up and say, would you tell her to get away? She's driving us crazy. She keeps coming after us. So he turns to her and says, I've only come after the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, my mission are the Jews. This is who I've come to save. And so she cries out even more, please help me. Please. And then he says this line, which I suppose a lot of people would think was really derogatory, but it was, it was uh, perhaps kind of humorous or just cultural. You know, um, you know, you don't take the bread from the table and give it to the dogs. You know, you're not part of us. You're not part of my mission. Now, again, you might think how rude, but I, I believe Jesus was prodding her, pushing further, pushing further, because she didn't give up. He just called her a dog. She did not give up. She persisted. Please, Lord, you can help me. And then she says this. Even the dogs get the scraps that fall from the table. You call me a dog, then I'm a dog. But even dogs get scraps. Can't you give me something? And, and this is the setup. We've been set up for this moment when Jesus turns and says, Woman, you have faith. And you will receive what you ask for. Now, I like to say, when we read these scriptures, we're going back 2,000 years and further, even back to Isaiah. And I call it the little story because it's the, the story that we read, the events that happened long ago. And it's important. That's the context in which we're going to understand our faith. But the big story is always, how does this story affect us? What is this? got to do with this, with this. And I think it's so obviously clear, it almost is ridiculous to state it, but uh, the question is, what kind of faith do we have? What kind of persistence in faith? What if we were like the Jews who didn't recognize the power and grace that was among us? What if? And what if we, in not recognizing it, are not persistent in our faith and don't know how to go after it? Just dogged faith that we must have it. Lord, hear our prayer. And we're asked to consider if we can realize that even just a little faith does wonders. Scraps. Just to get scraps that fall from the table. If that matters enough that we will persist, or like the tiny mustard seed compared a couple weeks ago, just plant a tiny mustard seed becomes this huge tree. With little faith, 
with little real faith, amazing things can happen. And so it seems to me that the question becomes, uh, what is the quality of our faith and are we persistent? What do we pray for? Now in this case, she gets exactly what she was asking for. But I'm a big proponent that, that our prayers uh, should be bigger than just some kind of a, a narrow, I want this, I want a new job, I want this class. Uh, you know, people pray for those things. I hear about these prayers. I'll tell you a good example. The prayers are the ones that will follow in the intercessions today. Listen to them. They're, they're drawn right from these scriptures, but they're called universal prayers. And when I was in the seminary, we, the priest would begin the intercessions, and then he'd say, please add any intentions you wish. So people would pray, for example, somebody would say, well, I'll pray for my uh, great-grandmother that she will get well. L Lord, hear our prayer. Then somebody else would say, for my Aunt uh, Guzzi, that she can get well of and healed from this or that. Lord, hear our prayer. Then somebody else would pray for a sick person. And we were always told their universal prayers are not personal. I mean, we have personal intentions to include, but we should universalize all of our prayers. So if I pray for my Aunt Guzzi, who is sick, and for all the sick, and for healing for all, to go from the particular to the universal, to include to draw people in. That's what our prayer should be. That's what those universal prayers are like today. And what if that's the way we prayed about everything? Lord, I really want this class in school, but you know, Lord, inspire me to deepen my educational pursuits. Help me to hunger and thirst for education. That's a great prayer. Instead of just praying for someone's health or my own health, to say, Lord, you know, for all the people who are ailing, and not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually, for all the ills that are in society, Lord, touch us, heal us, strengthen us. And our prayers shouldn't become so narrow, but they should, through the narrow prayers that we might have, expand and grow. And we ask, like this woman, please, Lord, please, give us your light, give us your spirit, give us your strength, give us an understanding, Give us your grace. Give us your desire. Touch our hungers. Touch our thirsts. Make us alive. Today, if I had to name her, I'd say that, is a, the, that woman is the patron saint of prayers because she teaches us how to pray. Persistent and digging down and asking God with all her heart and soul and even taking what sounds like abusive language, you say, okay, I'm a dog then. But please, even the dogs get the scraps. Please, Lord, please. Let us in this liturgy, we have a lot of, to pray for, but let us pray for the needs, not just of our own, but of the world, and especially in this pandemic. You know, um, I just read two days ago that Spain is getting its second wave, and it's worse than the first. Uh, that's just dreadful news but we've been warned for months. You know, we need to pray not just for an end to the pandemic, but to give us the strength to endure it, to give us the courage to face it, to give us the desire to be there for one another during it, and for this pandemic not to defeat us, but to call us to become even more.